Now, we as Gentiles may have been tempted to think God's done with ethnic Israel. And you can't read that into this text. That may cause Gentiles to grow arrogant or to grow complacent. But see, that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about. It's about God's sovereign purpose, even when we don't see him at work. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, this morning we continue our exposition of the epistle of Romans, and we're nearing the completion of our study of 9, 10, and 11. And we've been unpacking this theme of God's sovereign purpose. And next week, we're going to see the conclusion of this kind of mini-series as Paul breaks into thunderous praise, considering the mercies of God in the lives of his people. But as I mentioned before, today we come to perhaps the most challenging text in Romans, and certainly one of those passages that Peter may have been referring to in 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, Peter said this. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Peter says, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter says, There are some things that are hard to understand that Paul writes. Well, for once, Peter was actually understating. (laughs) It may be hard to understand, but we need to understand. Some things in Scripture are hard to understand. Do you understand? Peter began that same epistle, 2 Peter, in chapter 1, explaining we need to add to our faith knowledge as we grow in our faith in Christ. And as Christians, it isn't good and it isn't right for us to stay in a perpetual state of childishness, to stop at things that are difficult to comprehend and just stay kind of in the shallow end of the pool, wearing our floaties and playing with our pool noodles, singing about the love of God, using words that aren't biblical, like reckless. Now, the Bible says our faith should be childlike, not childish. And there's a significant difference between the two. Childlike faith expresses a simple dependence and a humble reliance upon the Lord as we increase in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Childish faith is simplistic, and it makes excuses while asking for a sippy cup. So throughout the New Testament, we are exhorted to wean off baby's milk and begin to digest solid food as we mature in our understanding of the nature of God, of the doctrine of God, of the grace of God, and of course, the gospel of God. So it's with childlike faith that we approach a difficult passage like this with humble hearts. And my prayer is that we would be dependent upon the Lord for understanding. So in these verses today, we're going to see two main ideas if you're taking note. Jot these down. Number one, we're going to see mystery for the discerning in verses 25 and 27. And then we're going to see mercy for the disobedient in verses 30 and 32. But as you can see, 
we are skipping over 28 and 29, and we're not skipping over them in order out of pastoral cowardice. I'm actually intentionally separating this middle section so we can see how God's people have been misunderstanding the design. So we're going to kind of save that for the end, the middle part, okay? So going a little bit out of order. But in the end, our response to the sermon today, to the text, should be exactly what Paul's response is. It should be maybe this fourth idea of marveling at the deliverer. And that's exactly what Paul does in the very last section in Romans 11, which, spoiler alert, we will be at next week. So you can read ahead for next week. But let's look at our first section, mystery for the discerning. Verse 25, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Now please underline the word mystery here in verse 25. When this New Testament word mystery shows up in our minds because of culture, we immediately think of CSI, or if you're older than that, mystery novels by Agatha Christie, or if you're younger than that, when we were kids, Scooby-Doo's gang goes and they pull the mask off the criminal, and he says, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you snooping kids. That's not what the word mystery means in the New Testament. To use the definition that Ligon Duncan uses, the word mystery in the New Testament means an open secret. So if you're taking notes, that's a good definition, an open secret. A mystery is something that could not be understood unless God had made it known to us, unless God had revealed it to us. And so Paul explains to the church in Rome that he doesn't want them to be wise by their own estimation or unaware of something that God previously, it was out in the open, but God has now revealed and made it clear. For generations, Jew and Gentile didn't get it, but now he's disclosed it. Now it's understood. Now, while we're on this topic, you can jot a few of these mysteries down in the New Testament because there are about a dozen. Here's five of them, though. We see in the New Testament the mystery of godliness, and it's rooted in Christ. We see the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We see the mystery of the bride of Christ. We see the mystery of the resurrection of the saints. And we see the mystery of God restoring all things. These on the screen are open secrets. So if you look at that list, we see husbands and wives in real time in front of us. But in a mysterious way, this relationship, Paul says, is actually a relationship that Christ, or an example of Christ's relationship with his church, the bride of Christ. The resurrection of the saints well, that can be seen in plain sight with a field of wheat. The wheat is sown into the ground in one form, and it's reaped in another, but it's the same kernel. And until Christ rose from the dead, this was something that the agrarian society actually didn't fully grasp. We see that God will bring the restoration of all things one day, but previously this was unknowable. This was concealed. So mysteries previously kept hidden are now disclosed in Christ and in the church. Stephen Cole says, mystery does not refer to some puzzle where we have to use our reason to piece together the clues to figure out what's going on. And contrary to the mystery religions of Paul's day, he says, or the Freemasons of our day, it does not refer to secret knowledge that only the initiated inner circle can know. Rather, it means something that has been concealed and is unknowable by human reason, but which God has now revealed. Now, don't miss why Paul is revealing this or updating them on this mystery. Notice in verse 25, get your eyes on the text. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. 
Remember, as Pastor Micah taught us last week, in this section of Romans, Paul has turned his attention from the Jew, the Jewish Christian to the Gentile Christian. And he is reminding them, you're not the supporting root. No, you're the wild olive shoots that have been grafted into the root. And so you need to guard your hearts, as we learned last week, we need to guard our hearts from arrogant pride or from self-ignorant wisdom. We need to note the kindness of God and the severity of God toward Gentile and Jew. And we need to guard our minds from being wise in our own estimation. And so to do that, Paul helps reveal a mystery to ground the Gentiles in Scripture's wisdom. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this. There are many things we're unaware of, aren't there? That we're just ignorant of. And we can deduce there's a wisdom from above and there's a wisdom from below. And the wisdom from below is where we in our ignorance make judgment calls or statements or beliefs that aren't rooted in Scripture. And we become wise in our own sight. Man's wisdom is rooted in his own logic and rhetoric, whereas the wisdom from above, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of true wisdom. And wisdom from above is rooted in the understanding that it originates from God. So what is the mystery then? What is it? Well, look at the rest of the verse. He says, here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All right, so we have to remind ourselves of some definitions here. We've already seen from verse 6 in chapter 11 that when Paul refers to Israel, this does not mean each and every singular Israelite. It means all who are physically descended from Abraham and all who would eventually believe, ultimately those who would believe. We've also already seen from verse 7 that the rest of the people of ethnic Israel, they did not obtain a righteousness through the law, but they were actually hardened. If you were here two weeks ago, we had a picture of a donut because I love donuts. There is kind of the, the, the actual ethnic Israel and then the believing within the middle, the donut hole. You guys remember that? So, okay, a couple of you do. So the, the elect, meaning believing Israel, obtained it. But those who sought righteousness through the Mosaic covenant became hardened. And here in verse 25, Paul says this was a partial hardening. Partial. That word partial is important. So it's, it's both partial in time and in scope. In other words, it wasn't a permanent hardening, nor a perfect hardening, meaning a thorough 100% hardening. It was partial. It was only for a season, and it was only among some or most of the Jews. Let's not forget, God is the one who hardens, but hardening is simultaneously this judicial process by which God hands someone over to their own stubbornness even as they are persisting in their rebellion. So we read about in Romans 11, Pharaoh, or Romans 9, Pharaoh hardening his heart. But under it all, or you more accurately would say over it all, God was sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so this hardening in many ways is a spiritual insensitivity or a veil that causes someone to persist in unbelief. Today, ethnic Israel is blinded behind a veil which causes them to persistently reject Jesus as their Messiah. But as we've already read, there's always a remnant. For the, uh, there is a remnant, but for the majority, they're hardened. So how long would this hardening take place? It's partial, but notice what Paul says in verse 25. He says, until, until something happens. What is it? Until the fullness 
of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, does not mean each and every single Gentile will come to faith. Man, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? I wish I had the ability to have every single person I share the gospel with come to saving faith. Wouldn't that be great? I've been traveling a lot recently, and so uh, I, I would love this. I just Every time I get on the plane, I just walk right up, and I'm like, hey, you're a sinner who needs to repent and who needs Christ. And just bam, they're confessing Christ right there. They're weeping. They're asking for a Bible, and they're ready to join a solid biblical church. Like, how awesome would that be? Uh, and I'd say, hey, this is great. Do you mind if I get my seat by the window? I haven't taken my seat yet. <laughs> Uh, that would be awesome. That would be wonderful. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying the fullness of the Gentiles means every Gentile will come to saving faith. But it does mean the full number of the elect from the Gentile world as a whole. And when that happens, that will signal the wondrously merciful mission of God to the nations. It has come to a conclusion. And that will signal a lifting of the hardening for much of Israel. And we're living in that exact era as we speak. We're living in the era of seeing the fullness of the Gentiles come to a conclusion. Even today, as ethnic Israel is partially hardened to the gospel. And we said this recently in Romans 10, there are still billions and billions and tens of millions, particularly in the 1040 window, who still have not even heard the gospel. They still don't even have access to the gospel. And so it's up to every generation, to our generation, to work together with the church to complete this task to the nations, of bringing the gospel to the peoples of the nations to hear of Christ. So when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, according to Paul, he says that the partial hardening will be lifted. And Paul says this, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And we're going to come back to that, but first look at his quote from the Old Testament. Look at his quote to support this claim. He says, As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. If you're taking note, this is Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, along with Isaiah 27, 9. So Isaiah 27 and 59. So in context, Isaiah is referring to the Messiah coming to bring his people, Israel, to repentance. And in the midst of that, deliverance from their sins as God's covenant is finally established. And just notice in the verse how much of this is God's initiation. Look at this. He is the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. It's his covenant, and he will take away their sins. Now, we know this is future tense because Though Messiah has come and has brought us salvation by delivering us from our sin, we have yet to see ungodliness banished from Jacob. So there is an eschatological or future reality to Paul's argument here. The deliverer has come but has not yet come in the fullness of his second coming. All Israel has not been saved, but Paul says this will happen. But what do you mean by all? That troublesome little word, all has gotten so many people scratching their heads, snuffing their noses, getting up in the middle of the sermon and walking out. Now, don't do that today, okay? Please don't do that. Little troublesome word, all, okay? What does all mean? Well, it absolutely cannot mean each and every single member of ethnic Israel. It cannot mean the nation of Israel in mass as a whole. 
will come to saving faith as some teach. Some erroneously believe that God has a different means of salvation for Jew and a different means of salvation for Gentile. They would say, yeah, for the Gentile, it's grace through faith in Christ, but for the Jew, it just means being a Jew. You're just physically descended from Abraham, even racially. If you don't believe in Jesus, racially, you're going to be saved. You don't believe in Jesus as Messiah, that's okay, you're still saved because you're a part of the nation of Israel. We cannot support a teaching like this because this is as unbiblical as calling abortion women's health care. Okay? It's odd that we care for the woman who's pregnant and yet not the woman to be who's still in the mother's womb. But I digress. This does not and cannot mean each and every ethnic Israelite. So what does it mean by all Israel? What does that mean? Well, 1 Kings 12.1 gives us some indication of the phrase when it uses the same phrase this way. It says, Rehoboam, that's the king, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. You guys see the phrase, all Israel? And, and so all Israel does not mean each and every single Israelite. Every single Jewish man, woman, and child showed up in Shechem to anoint Rehoboam. It just means a representative of the nation came out. The nation was represented, was represented to support Shechem or to support, support Rehoboam as king in Shechem. Now, Daniel uses this exact same phrase in Daniel 9, 11, when he confesses before God and says, all Israel has sinned against you, God. Well, we know that cannot mean each and every single Israelite because Paul has already argued there's always a believing remnant within Israel. So all Israel just simply means a representative of or a majority of the nation, a large majority. And I want to make this point stronger because as we move to our second section in verses 30 through 32, Paul literally uses the same word in verse 32. Look down at it, verse 30. This is the section, mercy for the disobedient. So he says, for just as you were, okay, we have to know our pronouns here. Who's the you? Is that Jew or Gentile? Call it out, church. Is that Jew or Gentile? You. Gentile. You as a Gentile were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Okay, who's the there? This is much easier. The Jew. So they, you still with me? That's the Jew, right? They too may uh, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, that's Gentile again, they, Jew, also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned, here's that word, all to disobedience that he may have mercy on Here's the word again, all. So listen, God, that does not mean God is having mercy on all people throughout all time, that every single person will go to heaven. That is a false doctrine called universalism. So all doesn't mean all people. It means the Gentiles who would believe and the Jews who would believe. And so we need to make sure that we are not heretics and believe, yeah, everyone's going to heaven. All dogs go to heaven and so do all humans. We would reject that. So he's saying, you were, as Gentiles, you were disobedient, past tense, but you received mercy. Why? Because the Jews rejected the gospel. Praise God they did. And now they too are disobedient. And uh, through the mercy you received, they will eventually receive mercy again. Do you guys follow Paul's argument through the chapters? Throughout this chapter, Paul has been arguing that God has worked in, listen, similar yet distinct ways 
among the ethnic Jews as well as the nations, the Gentiles. And the connection that these two groups have under God's sovereign purpose. So we've learned ethnic Israel failed to obtain righteousness through the law, but those who sought it by faith have obtained it. Ethnic Israel's jealousy or their trespass or their failure has yielded salvation and riches to all who would believe. Ethnic Israel's rejection has led to the Gentiles' reconciliation. They were broken off as branches. You and I were, as Gentiles, were the wild olive shoots that were grafted back into the tree. And we have remained in the tree as we stand fast through faith. So we've seen the severity of God, the kindness of God, and how he approaches both peoples. And Paul says, even though at the present time we have been grafted in, he's also saying this mystery is that there will eventually come a time when many from ethnic Israel are grafted back in as well. Not everyone, not just because you are a child of Abraham through the flesh. We've already learned that in Galatians. We've learned that through the the book of Romans. So remember back in verse 12, he asked this question. He said, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So a day is coming when the fullness of the Gentiles will reach its completion and God will lift this partial hardening, not on all, but on a large representative majority of ethnic Israelites. And they will receive Jesus as Messiah, not a secondary means of salvation. They'll receive, as Paul says, the deliverer, quoting Isaiah. They will see the deliverer who saves by removing transgression and by completing his covenant with not just Israel, but with the Israel of God, the church, uh, comprised of not only many ethnic Jews, but also Gentiles. So who are you and I? You and I, we are the outcasts. We are the people who were not a people. We are the ones who were afar off. We were the wild olive shoots. We weren't a part of the tree. We have received mercy. Notice that his identity statement for us is that we are, in verse 30, disobedient. That's, that sums us up in a word. Who are you before Christ? There you have it. There's your testimony. I was disobedient. I was in darkness. I was a sinner. And yet, what did he have towards the disobedient? It says he had mercy. Does this ever get old? This truth never gets old. That, that God in Christ has extended mercy to us. The only time it gets old is when we forget. Paul told the Ephesians, don't forget who you were. He says in Ephesians 2, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You and I were disobedient, but now we have received mercy. We were sinner. Now we have the identity of saint. This never gets old. Well, why is Paul addressing this? I believe because both Jew and Gentile were misunderstanding God's design. Look back at the two verses that we bypassed to see our third point, misunderstanding the design. Look at verse 28. Paul says, as regards the gospel, they, remember who they are? Jew or Gentile? Not as confident that time. It's okay. Jew. They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
So notice what Paul says. He addresses them, the ethnic Israelite, who doesn't believe. He's referring to them as enemies. He says, they're your enemies as regards the gospel. So let's not forget that. This doesn't mean I need to fight Jews as my enemies. And many people have sadly deduced that. No, I need to pray for them as my enemy. I need to love them as my enemy. I need to evangelize them. That's what Jesus called us to do with our enemies. When we look at the Jews through the gospel lens, we see someone who's rejected the gospel. They're at enmity with God. But Paul says, as regards election, they, we should not see enemy, but beloved. Why? Well, Paul says, for the sake of their forefathers. So when we look at the electing love of God for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that qualifies each and every one of his natural descendants to be able to say, I'm loved by God. And that's our prayers that they would move from, yeah, I'm beloved by God because of my ancestry, but I want to be a true child of faith. I want to be a true child of Abraham. God made a covenant with my ancestor. He allowed my people to be adopted and to receive the glory and to receive the covenants and the law and the worship and the promises. And from our race came the great priests and kings and prophets. But best of all, the prophet greater than Moses, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the king of kings who sits on David's throne and will rule and reign forever, the deliverer, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. That's our prayers that they would move from beloved of God to believing. God may have promised this to his people, but Paul says the calling of God, the gifts of God, the promises of God, they're irrevocable. He's not going to pull back on his promises. There's a remnant always, and yet that small donut hole will grow. It won't fill the hole, but it'll fill much, and that is yet to happen. There's always been a faithful remnant, but one day, I believe Zechariah 12 and 13 tell us what will happen. It says in Zechariah 12:10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then he says in 13:1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, we as Gentiles may have been tempted to think God's done with ethnic Israel. And you can't read that into this text. That may cause Gentiles to grow arrogant or to grow complacent. But see, that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about. It's about God's sovereign purpose, even when we don't see him at work. It's about seeing his mercy in the midst of disobedience. It's about seeing his purpose among all peoples, hardening some for a season, and yet showing mercy on many. Well, we don't have time. Time doesn't permit us to go into uh, all of the details, but notice that Paul recalls this mystery to more than just the Roman church. Notice he also speaks to the Ephesians about this. In Ephesians 3, jot this down, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here it is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Remember, a mystery is an open secret. And so the truth is that God has been telling Israel this for a millennia. Hey, 
Just so you know, the gospel is going to go out. The good news that my blessing will go to all nations. He's been telling the Jews this since Abraham, ultimately. Now, you may not believe me, but I just want to spend a minute on this. We have a, a couple minutes. So let me just get, spend a minute on this so you can see this. This is not like an afterthought. This is not God going, hey, we should think about the nations. We should think about the Gentiles. Man, the Jew, we should have a court for the Gentiles. That's a good idea. No, we see this all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant. So just jot these few verses down. First, Genesis 12. God says, right out of the gate, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And in you, Abraham, all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's going to be because the Jew, from the Jewish line will come Messiah. God repeats that same promise to Isaac and to Jacob, the son and grandson of Abraham. Eventually, Moses understands God's going to be made known to all peoples, not only because it's in the Torah, but also because he related to Pharaoh in Exodus 9. Notice on the screen, jot this down, Exodus 9, 16. God says to Pharaoh, and Moses records this, I've raised you up for this purpose, that I might show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How would that happen if it weren't for the gospel going to the Jew first, then to the Gentile? Well, it's repeated to Joshua in Joshua 4, 24. You can jot that verse down. It's repeated often in the Psalms. It's almost like God wanted the people to be singing this lyric over and over. Psalm 67 is one example where the people say, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And they take a nice big sailor there, a nice big musical break. Take a breath. That's usually where we stop, by the way. Yes, Lord, bless me. I just want to be blessed. Lord, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your grace. But the point is that, verse 2, your way may be known on earth, your saving power, not just among Israel, but among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Uh, by the way, that's just one psalm among dozens and dozens. But God's salvation going to the nations is all throughout the book of Isaiah. But listen to one reference, Isaiah 52.10 says, Yahweh will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So listen, it's not just Isaiah, it's Jeremiah, it's Ezekiel, it's Daniel, it's Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They all attest to God reaching the nations with his glory. And one of my favorites is Habakkuk 2.14. So this will be the final one where Habakkuk says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That isn't just a tacit ear turning. That is that God's glory will be known. The knowledge of his glory will be known. And this has always been God's design from the very beginning. This has been a mystery for ages past, but now it's been disclosed to us that God would come to his own in Christ and his own would reject him. And he would use this rejection to extend his glory to the nations. And in doing that, that would provoke jealousy among his people, even though for a season, many of them would be hardened as a small remnant walked by faith. But eventually, he will turn again to the nation, and a major representation of ethnic Israel will confess Jesus as Messiah. So this remains a not yet, something I believe we'll see just before the return of Christ but this should still motivate us to global gospel mission, knowing the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. 
that this should encourage us and maybe even provoke us to global gospel mission. Amen? Well, we have three ways to apply this text. Again, a difficult text, but how can we apply this to us today? First of all, we would apply it this way. God's sovereignty is fused with God's mercy. As we look at 9, 10, and 11, so many people think about the term predestination or election or God's sovereignty, and they see Israel and Jacob, and they see Esau and Pharaoh and the branches that are cut off. And here's their deduction. Their deduction from these things is that that's unfair. God's unjust. God's unmerciful. And that's the exact wrong conclusion that Paul's trying to draw. He's actually trying to draw the opposite conclusion, that people who are undeserving receive mercy, that God is sovereign over all of it. So that is just like us, and I've used this illustration before. This is like us getting mad at DeSantis, who as the governor has the authority to graciously pardon one criminal on death row. And that's like us getting mad that he didn't pardon everyone. Why didn't he pardon everyone? That's, that guy's unjust. And so we take to social media to complain how evil DeSantis is. Listen, to the pardoned criminal, that governor is his savior. And the governor's merciful authority is something the pardoned criminal cherishes and welcomes. It's only to the critical judging eye that condemnation is put on the judge and not on the person, right? So we need to realize that God is merciful. Uh, when we think about the sovereignty of God, may we not lift an angry fist, but an open hand of gratitude and reception because God's sovereignty is fused with God's mercy. He's sovereign over your life and has he not been merciful to you? He was merciful to you who were disobedient. He didn't treat you, the psalmist said, as your sins deserve. He's being merciful to the Jew even today in their partial hardening. But one day, he'll show even more mercy to many. You and I, as obstinate, disobedient rebels, we deserve wrath. And even in wrath, God remembers mercy. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So God's sovereignty is, is fused with God's mercy. Don't misunderstand that as you read these verses. Many people just write it off. I've seen pastors get to Romans 8, they finish, they go, all right, moving on to Ephesians. They don't even tackle this section because it's, it's riddled with controversy. Why? Because when it really comes down to it, we're the creature. He's the creator. He's sovereign, but he's good. And we can rest in his mercy. Well, secondly, we can also apply this uh, to know that our wisdom is founded in God's word. Notice that Paul exhorts his readers not to become wise in their own sight or unaware. And for generations, the people of Israel were ignorant of the inclusion of the nations in the worship of Yahweh. And the Gentiles in Rome had run the risk of becoming ignorant of God's present and future work among the Jews. So to make his case, Paul says, it is written, and he quotes scripture. Remember Jesus defending himself against the temptations of Satan? What did he say? He didn't say, get away from me. He said, it, it, well, he did eventually, but he said, it is written. It is written. You and I should not try to improve upon Paul or Christ. It is written. So what's the final arbiter in our faith and practice? Uh, it's written. What is the wisdom we need to handle some real life scenarios today? Well, the Bible doesn't say that specifically about my marriage or our family dynamic. Well, it may not say specifically you're supposed to go through this situation, Exactly, but the scripture gives us wisdom on how to do it. So 
we have far too many resources to make excuses like, well, I didn't know the Bible said that. We have the economy of perspective, time, and access. Think about it. We have the perspective of, uh, or the economy of perspective. We live in a time in history after Christ has come, after the gospel has come or is coming to the nations. So we have the perspective of a completed canon, and that informs our theology. Not only perspective, we have the economy of time. And if we were honest about our lack of wisdom, does it come down to not reading the scripture? Does it come down to ignorance? Like, I just didn't know the Bible said that. Typically, for 99 out of 100 Christians, it doesn't come down to ignorance, but laziness. We would rather binge watch Squid Game than binge read the Psalms. So can you say with confidence, it is written, I know, because I've spent time in his word, or is it more of a question? Oh, it is written? Oh, I didn't know that. Now, if perspective and time weren't enough, we also have the economy of access. I was blown away. We have, since we have the uh, Bible written in English, we have had 450 Bible translations in English. Currently today, there are 20 in regular circulation. 20. So we have like 20 Bibles in our own language. We have Bible software, Bible commentaries, Bible dictionaries, systematic theology volumes. We even have Google. Uh, If you were, you know, pre-98, you didn't have that. So our generation grew up previously without Google. But today, just type in Bible. I did it this week. I, I typed in Bible in Google. And can you guess how many search results came back? More than three. Yes, more than three. 6.5 billion with a B. So if we have a Bible question, we have a Bible with an answer. Let's not be wise in our own sight. Let's do what the Bible says. As Paul says, it is written. Uh, So finally, number three, not only is our wisdom founded in God's word, but our worship is fueled by God's nature. As we'll see next week, Paul's response to this entire section is benediction. It's worship. In light of the sovereign mercies of God, our response should be to exalt and adore him. Now, many people land differently about what all Israel means, but no matter where you land on this theologically, we can all agree God is working by his his mercy, by his sovereignty to mightily save. We can all agree on that then let that be our focus, not on who's right, on who's wrong in their eschatology. If that's your one-string guitar, then we've lost the plot. In fact, we should be practicing, as we did this morning, the song we'll be singing with the angels, holy, holy, holy. As we close this morning, the glorious good news is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. And there's no ethnic people group beyond the reach of his grace. And so in the scriptures, we see Jews looking down on Samaritans. We see Jews looking down on Gentiles. Through church history, we see Gentiles discriminating against Jews. We see Greeks considering anyone outside of the realm of their democratic ideals as a barbarian. And around the world today, many people groups are mistreated or persecuted just because of their skin color or their ethnicity. And so we as a church go on record rejecting critical race theory and intersectionality specifically and wokeness generally because that's just racism rebranded. No, we glory in the gospel of Christ which unites all peoples at the cross and declares there's one race, there's the human race. And those who are in Adam, we're all condemned, but all who are in Christ, 
the last Adam, the greater Adam, will be redeemed. So there's no caste system in Jesus' church. There's no Jew nor Greek. We've now been made one people, one new body. And Revelation 7, 9 says that there will be worshipers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so may we actively participate in the joyful work of welcoming people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue into this family of God until, until all of Israel, as Paul rightly defines all of Israel, which is all who would believe, until all Israel truly is saved. Amen? Let's stand together and we're going to close in song. But before we do, I want to pray a prayer of confession for us from Valley of Vision, the Puritan prayer book. And this prayer is called Living for Jesus. So let's bow our heads and I'll pray this. If this is your prayer, just agree with it as I pray. Savior of sinners, your name is excellent. Your glory is high. Your compassions are unfailing. Your condescension is wonderful. Your mercy is tender. I bless you for the discoveries, invitations, and promises of the gospel. For in them is pardon for rebels, liberty for captives, health for the sick, salvation for the lost. I come to you in your beloved name, Jesus. Re-impress your image upon my soul. Raise me above the smiles and frowns of the world, regarding it as a light thing to be judged by men. May your approbation be my only aim, your word my one rule. Make me to abhor that which grieves your Holy Spirit, to suspect consolations of a worldly nature, to shun a careless way of life, to reprove evil, to instruct with meekness those who oppose me, to be gentle and patient towards all men, to be not only a professor, but an example of the gospel, displaying in every relation, office, and condition the excellency, loveliness, and advantages of the gospel. How little have I illustrated my principles and improved my privileges. How seldom I have served my generation. How often have I injured and not recommended my Redeemer. How few are those who are blessed through me. In many things I have offended. In all I've come short of thy glory. Lord, pardon our iniquity for it is great. That's our prayer this morning. Forgive our sin. Heal us, Lord. Lord, make us new. We pray that you would be exalted in and through our lives. And Lord, as we close in song, that all glory would be given to you, Jesus, in and through our lives. We thank you for taking the disobedient and giving them mercy. We receive that today by faith because of your grace and in Christ. We pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.